Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for guiding our travels, allowing us to come here and prepare our hearts to hear your word. I pray that my words are few and that your words are many. I pray that you, that your word, the words that are on my lips, that they are empowered by your spirit and that they, and that they magnify your son and that they glorify you through this time that we get to spend together, Father. Uh, lead us through this time. Keep us humble and open our hearts to receive this beautiful message that you have penned through uh, the hand of Paul so that we may receive it and learn from it here tonight. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I promise I do pray to uh, have enough strength to be up here without tearing up, but when they put the youth up here to worship or to lead us in worship, it gets hard because I, I see them as my children because even though I've only been leading them for about a year, um, teaching the youth, uh, being in the rotation of pastors along with uh, Pastor Josh and uh, Pastor Doug, uh, leading the youth, I'm in that rotation. And so to see them uh, up here leading uh, the, the worship, it, it gets to me. So please, I ask that you have grace for me as I'm still trying to uh, navigate through this through these uh, magnanimous uh, blessings. <clears throat> so just a quick background, if you're not familiar with Paul's letter to the Philippians, um, we see the, the planting of the church in Philippi uh, first in Acts 16. We see that Paul meets Timothy, has a vision to go to Macedonia, and so when he arrives at Philippi, which is the leading city in Macedonia, also a Roman colony, he meets Lydia and her household get saved. Her and her household get saved. While they're preaching the gospel in Philippi, they are followed by a fortune-telling slave girl who is basically annoying Paul for several days. And so eventually his annoyance reaches um, its limit and he casts out the spirit that is in her. Once the spirit is casted out from her, uh, her owners realize that they are no, no longer going to profit from this slave girl. And so what happens is that they, uh, Timothy and, and Paul, while preaching here in Philippi, um, are, are jailed. They're imprisoned because they're teaching something that is opposite, uh, that opposite that is according to Roman law. And that's claiming that Jesus is Lord rather than Caesar. Very, very controversial uh, proclamation in a Roman colony. So once they're jailed, um, they, they pray and they sing hymns. And then the doors open. Every door in the prison is opened. All the shackles from the, pri the prisoners are undone. And they're essentially released. But they don't go anywhere. So the Philippian jailer wakes up and realizes that he has made a grave mistake with letting these prisoners go free, knowing that he's soon going to be executed by uh, the Roman guard. He seeks to uh, kill himself. And before he kills himself, Paul calls out to him and him calling out to him strikes uh, so much surprise in the Philippian jailer that him and his house household get saved as well. So 
with the Philippian jailer and his household and Lydia and her household, we have this faith-based community in Philippi essentially established. So that's the background on this, this community in Philippi. And then later in Acts 28, we see that Paul is imprisoned and he, history, um, historians and uh, biblical scholars um, see Acts 28, his imprisonment in Acts 28 in Rome as um, the place of, of him penning this letter to the Philippians. Acts 28 is essentially in the grand scheme of the timeline. It is about 10 to 12 years after he planted the church in Acts 16. So it's not completely linear, but we see that that's 10 to 12 years later. And that plays a significant role because in the first chapter of Philippians, Paul commends this church for their fellowship from the first day until now, meaning that they have been enjoying wonderful fellowship for 10 to 12 years. So the letter to the Philippians is an occasional letter, meaning that Paul is writing for a specific reason, and that reason is thanksgiving. We, we are introduced in chapter 2 uh, to a man named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was essentially the courier or the, or the, the messenger between the Philippians and Paul. So when Paul was imprisoned, the Philippians were off in Philippi, and they were sending Epaphroditus with resources necessary to keep Paul alive. Roman, and Roman prisons were not like our prisons today. They, didn't, they, they weren't provided meals. They weren't provided clothing. Roman prisoners were in prison waiting trial or waiting execution. So they could care less for anyone who was in prison because they were enemies of the state. And so um, providing resources to the prisoners was their lifeline. We find out later in, at the end of Philippians that Paul wasn't uh, commending the Philippians for their gift, but he was commending them for what the gift represented, and that was faithfulness. And so another theme of Paul's letter to the Philippians is joy, is rejoicing. So what makes church leadership rejoice more than the offerings, the people's faithfulness. They don't pray for the offering every service to, you know, like Pastor Josh says, to armbar you into giving. They do it because they want to see you faithful. That is their, their true joy, is to see their children, to see their spiritual children faithful. And so that is essentially the background on Philippians. And so just to kind of catch us up to, we're going to be in chapter three. And so just to catch us up, uh, bring us up to speed, uh, I'm going to recap chapters one and two briefly. So in chapter one, because Paul is imprisoned, in chapter one, it is absolutely essential, not only for the Philippians who have impending or current doom, in front of them, it is absolutely essential for them to understand that they need to rejoice in their suffering because Christ did. And so in chapter one, he outlines how that's possible. And that's possible when Christ followers are grateful, when, they're, when they express gratitude in what they've been given, which is the essence of grace. They pray. They pray for the maturity of the people around them and for themselves. They exalt Christ above themselves. 
in whether in life or in death. And we see that in one of the most common, commonly known phrases in Philippians, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That is exaltation. That is magnifying Christ above all. And then endurance. Uh, Paul seeks to remain in his current circumstances because it, it would lead to further fruitfulness for the Philippians. And then lastly, encouragement. He encourages them to uh, see the, pers- the coming persecution in the same way that Christ did. And that was in a spirit of humility. And then that, that brings us into chapter two, where Paul encourages them to have the attitude of humility. And he presents three examples. First example is Christ, Jesus himself, who emptied himself of his divine privileges, um, even to the point of death. And then he presents two of his beloved friends, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And so that leads us to chapter three. And we're only going to be going through the first 11 verses because they're pretty dense. But before I get into chapter three, I want to refer back to a specific verse in Jesus's prayer to the father on the night before he was crucified. I I believe that this is going to set the necessary groundwork, foundational groundwork for what we're going to see here in the first 11 verses of chapter three. And that phrase is in John 17. So John 17 is considered the high priestly prayer where Christ is essentially interceding for us to the father. And so the phrase that I want to highlight is John 17, verse 3, where Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So Christ himself puts incredible uh, significance to knowledge of the Father and himself, so much so that it leads to eternal life, that it, 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 upon it is eternal life. So this isn't... It beckons the definition defining knowledge. This is not a superficial knowledge. This isn't the type of knowledge that a super fan would have for a celebrity where they just uh, research a bunch of, a bunch of things, a bunch of details of this, of this person's life, and they think that they know them. It's not this super fan knowledge of a celebrity because it's vastly different than actually being married to one. You know a person much more when you get to experience their everyday life um, consistently in a more personal, more intimate um, relationship. So this knowledge is what I call uh, intimate conformity knowledge. Intimate conformity knowledge. The reason for that is because if you look at couples, I don't know if, if... Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just off my rocker. But if you look at couples and you notice that they just recently started dating or recently got married, over time, they begin, they almost begin to look like one another. They almost begin to resemble one another, not just in their looks, but also in their mannerisms in the things that they do and the things that they say, how they react to situations. That is intimate conformity knowledge. Um, I like how all the... Elderly married couples are, you know, snickering to themselves. Um, but this is essentially, this is essentially salvation. This um, intimate conformity knowledge is 
where, else, where our salvation lies. Because becoming like Jesus, we become more like Jesus, not necessarily our significant other, because we're in relationship with him. So this is, a, this is what Jesus is referring to when he says, this is eternal life that they may know you. When you are conformed further into the image of Christ, similar to how you are conformed into the image of your spouse, that is intimate conformity knowledge. It is a knowledge that you can't have simply observing somebody. You have to be in it. This is why it's so important to get into God's word. So I want, this to, I want you guys to keep this in mind because this is the foundational groundwork of, of our text tonight. So at the end of chapter two, Paul has just testified to the humility of Christ on the cross and two faithful brothers, Tim, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Now Paul draws attention to his own life in chapter three and provides a stark contrast between his previous persecution of the church to his present pursuit of knowing Christ. And if you have, your out, if you have an outline with you, um, I'm just gonna walk briefly through that outline. So our present pursuit of knowing Christ. I only have three points. Um, the first one is rejoice and warn. In our present pursuit of knowing Christ, we rejoice in the Lord and we, and we warn against false teaching and false teachers. The second point is characteristics. In our present pursuit of knowing Christ, we bear these characteristics. We worship in the spirit. We boast in Christ. We put no confidence in the flesh. And we consider the, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as our Lord, as our friend. And then lastly, point number three is hold fast. Hold fast to a Christ-centered salvation. So in our present pursuit of knowing Christ, this is what we hold fast to because this is where our salvation lies. And those three will be described in basically the three words that encompass the entire Christian life. And that is justification, sanctification, and glorification. Those are really th big theological words, but I, I, I tend, I'm going to uh, unpack those once we get there. So now we get to the text, finally. <laughs> so starting at verse one, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. So here, if, if, if you read Paul's letter to the Philippians, you know you automatically like, distinguish that he's being very repetitive with his, with his language here um, in commanding them to rejoice. With his repeated commands to rejoice, he emphatically demonstrates both pastoral love and friendship, fellowship type of love. <clears throat> the reason he does this is because, is because each believer is, has the prerogative has the command to share in the joys and the sorrows with one another, with each other. Why? Why do we need to do this? Because rejoicing in the Lord, Paul's command to rejoice in the Lord, does not happen in a vacuum. It does not happen linearly, lin linearly um, with one specific person. It happens in a community. Rejoicing in the Lord is a corporate experience. 
It is a community celebration. This proclamation, this command comes at the heels of him sending Epaphroditus at the end of chapter 2, where he says in verse 28, Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice. And then in verse 29, he says it again, Receive him, receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard. He is exhibiting that rejoicing in the Lord is action. It is community work. He also says that it's no, to repeat himself again, to be repetitive, is no trouble to him. It's no hindrance. He, he rejoices in doing so. Why? Because the true gospel, the true Christ-glorifying gospel, it gives us joy when we revi- revisit it. I've only been saved about seven years by God's grace. Um, but I... I will be bold enough to say that I think Christians need to hear the gospel more often than strangers do. Because if, if, if you remember, if you reflect on our study through the Old Testament, what was Israel's most problematic sin? Is that they forgot the Lord their God. They forgot to honor them. They forgot that he was the deliverer, that he delivered them out of Egypt. That phrase delivered out of Egypt, that the Lord delivered them out of Egypt, is repeated constantly throughout the Old Testament and is even reiterated in the New Testament to the Jewish believers. So I think the worst thing that could happen to a Christian besides suffering is losing, actually including suffering, is losing the sweetness of the gospel. Because if you lose the sweetness of the gospel, you when you come to, a, when you suffer, you see it as the world sees suffering, as a dead end, as God pointing his finger at you and keeping his finger on your forehead. You see it as death. But when you keep the sweetness of the gospel, when you remember, when you reflect on, when you rejoice in the Lord, in the true and living God, you keep that. One of my, one of my uh, professors in uh, seminary once said that a Christian falls in private. He fails in private far before he fails in public. With all of the, the no, notable preachers, pastors, apologists that have essentially renounced the faith, whether, whether with their words or with their actions, have all failed in, pub, in, in private first. They either weren't plugged into a local church or didn't submit to Christ with their people or um, in, their, in their quiet time, so to speak. <clears throat> so this call to rejoice in the Lord should remind us of the riches we have in Christ, the riches that Jesus secured for us on the cross. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says that this reminder is a safeguard. So rejoicing doesn't just keep, your, keep you um, focused on the sweetness of the gospel, of the grace of the Lord. It's also a safeguard for you to keep you safe. It's protection. So here we see that a true friend, a true pastor in the faith um, does, they remind us to rejoice in Jesus and reflect on the true gospel 
And like all true friends do and all true pastors should do as well, is that they warn against destructive dangers and heresies. So at the end of chapter 2, and even here, he has commended his close friends, and now he condemns dangerous dogs. Verse 2. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. So this is obvious, incredibly harsh language. Now, if you remember back in chapter one, we see that Paul mentions the preachers, uh, specific types of preachers in verse uh, 15 and 17, where he describes them as preaching Christ from envy and strife. And then in verse 17, they proclaim Christ not out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So is Paul referring to these preachers who are preaching out of selfish ambition here? I don't think so. The reason for that is because Paul wouldn't tolerate a severe mistake in in the true gospel of the true and living God. Here, he's referring to the enemies of the cross. He's not referring, when he says dogs, he's not referring to man's best friend, but rather a scavenger, a a diseased mongrel that roams around garbage cans and could harm you greatly with one bite. This is who Paul is referring to. This specific warning is against a very particular group called the Judaizers. The Judaizers were a group that were teaching in this time that you needed to obey Jewish law, namely circumcision, to be saved, which according to what to Paul's theology, to Jesus' theology, and to the entire message of the New Testament is severely false and completely in error because they are essentially adding to the cross of Christ. They are steamrolling it. The Jews called the Gentiles dogs, which basically, basically meant unclean, unclean ones. Jesus himself actually uses this word a few times in the New Testament. He, he uh, uses the word on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, verse 6, where he refers to, uh, where he says, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine. This is obviously a figure of speech, but he says it again in Mark. We see it again in Mark 7, um, verse 27 through uh, 29, where he refers to a woman as a dog. But the word here is not, so he's not using a figure of speech. The word he uses is a, a distinguishing factor of the same word. So this word actually means small dog. The small dog was tolerated in the house at this time. So let me just read this passage real quick. In verse 26 in Mark 7, he says, Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking... uh, And she kept asking Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, referring to her. 
But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And so Jesus responds with, Because of this answer, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. So Jesus wasn't referring to her as a dog to, to kick her while she's down. He's referring, he, the, the key point of understanding what's going on here is understanding the nature of the woman's response. In her response, she's acknowledging in obedience to the will of God, she understands the prerogative, the priority of Israel because the covenants, the blessings, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, all of those were given to Israel. Even the, Jewish, even the Jewish Messiah was of the Jewish heritage. And so right here we see that, that she understands that this is, that she's in obedience to the will of God. And so Jesus responds, go and heals her daughter. So here we see a reversal, a complete reversal. He takes the Judaizers' greatest source of pride and interprets it as a surest sign that they have no share among God's people if they do this. These, these Jews were enemies because they were distorting p- true purity. The Judaizers saw purity as as uh, they regarded purity as law-abiding Jewish heritage. But believers in Christ, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, purity is defined by being in Christ, being covered in the blood of the Jewish Messiah. So by despising the purity that comes from being in Christ, they put themselves in the place of the unclean ones, of the dogs. So to recap point number one, in our present pursuit of knowing Christ, we are to remind each other to rejoice in the Lord and to warn against destructive dangers and distortions of the gospel. So us as Christians, we save our harshest language for the people who thwart and distort the, the true gospel of, of God. Why? Because it distorts the person, the finished work, the glorification of our Lord. So we do not mince words with people who do that. Obviously, we do it out of love, but here we see that it's absolutely necessary because they are absolutely scrapping the, and damaging the, the true gospel. So that leads us to point number two, the characteristics. So here we, we, we see the, ne- the necessary aspect of reminders, the need for warnings. But warnings are always given with a point of clarification. If you look at every coffee cup, you'll see the warning caution. And it, doesn't, it just doesn't say caution. It says caution, hot. Every sign, like I, I deliver for Amazon um, when I'm not serving the church. And so when I see... A, a sign that says beware, I'm, I'm taking it back to the station. I'm taking the package back to the station because I have no idea what's around. I don't know if, the, if it's an electrical fence. I don't know if it's a dog, but most signs always have a point of clarification. 
It always says, beware, dog is loose, beware, dog is in the yard, beware, don't knock, on the, don't knock or ring the doorbell because our dogs inside will go crazy. Those are points of clarification. And so Paul here also gives a point of clarification because he doesn't want to give a beware sign and leave his children at paranoid because now they're going to be paranoid about everything. But he gives a point of clarification in verse 3. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So we stand as the true circumcision, as believers in Christ and his finished work. We stand safely and securely and confidently before God because of the work of another. Paul defines the true circumcision in Romans 2, verse uh, 28 through 29, where he says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision, circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but, but from God. So here, Paul delineates that the truly circumcised are those who have had their heart circumcised by the spirit. That is the true circumcision. Those who have been set apart as the true people of God, not because we, those who, are, who have been set apart as a true people of God, not because we have had some flesh cut off in circumcision, but because Christ himself was cut off for us. Paul, in Colossians 2.11, he calls the cross the circumcision of Christ. We are introduced to the covenant of circumcision in Genesis 17 when the promise is given to Abraham to circumcise um, every subsequent, offer, uh, every subsequent um, male on the eighth day. And we see that as a picture, as a dual picture of a blessing and a curse. If you remember back in Genesis in the first few chapters, we see that the initial mandate is to be fruitful and multiply. How, do you, how are you fruitful and multiply? Through the reproductive organ. So Abraham is presented in Genesis chapter 17. He's presented almost as a second Adam. This is the first picture of a second Adam where now the covenant, it's not the covenant of Adam before the fall. It now it's a covenant after the fall with Abraham. And this, the blessing is that he was going to be a father of many nations. How are you, how are you, how do you become the father of many nations? through the reproductive organ, but it also comes with a warning. Circumcision involves the cutting off of flesh. So in the same way, hey, this is a promise that you will be a father of many nations. You will reproduce many offspring through the reproductive organ, but if you don't obey, you will be cut off from the land. So this is what circumcision pointed to. It was a dual purpose covenant to remind the people of Israel that hey, you need to obey or else. And obviously, if you've been a believer for a while, we know that obedience is incredibly helpful, faithfulness, fruitfulness. <clears throat> so that's the nature of circumcision. So in Colossians uh, 2, 11 through 14, Christ is described as being cut off to accomplish and provide the true circumcision, to institute the true people of God. And obviously the Jews can be included in that too if they trust in Christ because he is the crux of the entire 
faith-based system. So as this true circumcision, our worship is no longer founded in our outward obedience to the Mosaic law. It is done in the spirit of God. This is our true and honorable worship. Our boasting, our glory is now no longer in our flesh, in, the, in, the, in our deeds of the flesh, in our outward deeds, in our outward obedience to the sacrificial law, to the sacrificial system. But it is in Christ because he fulfilled it completely to the last letter. So trusting in Christ is the defining marker of being in God's people. But if you have the desire to boast in the flesh, to boast in your deeds, um, Paul has something to say about that. Verses four through six. Although I myself, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. So Paul here lists his privileges, his achievements, the things that are, he separated himself from basically every single person in this time, even the, even the entire um, system of Pharisees. He puts himself as the pinnacle person according to the Mosaic law. So the first four of this list are birth privileges, things that he had, had been given to him simply because he was born in, in the status in which he was born. The next three are his own achievements. I think it's, it's hard for us to understand the severity of what he says because there aren't a lot of things that we can equate this to. The only things that we can kind of compare it to is uh, modern-day Judaism and Catholicism because they have not necessarily similar uh, uh, law obediences, but they have sacraments in order to be saved, in order to be included in the people of God. But I think a necessary portion of scripture that describes the tension, the severe tension between the Gentiles being included into the people of God is Romans 9 through 11. Oftentimes people take Romans 9 to go back and forth about predestination and election, where there's so much more to the conversation that Paul is contributing to in Romans 9 through 11. In Romans 9 through 11, he describes the incredible tension between Jew and, Gent Jew and Gentile. Has God failed the Jewish people? Because we have salvation as Gentiles, and so the people, the, the Gentile believers in Rome are asking themselves, but what about them? Has God turned their backs on them? And obviously, if you read um, Romans, that specific passage, 9 through 11, um, you'll see that it is, uh, that the answer is absolutely not. <clears throat> so Paul encourages us not to look at our outward works, whatever you may have the inclination to boast about, but he, he 
encourages us to look to the one who is the substance of all the shadows. In Colossians 2, verses 16 through 17, Paul says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival, festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So Paul says, like, all of these things were shadows pointing to something bigger, and that is your salvation in Jesus Christ through faith. So now he paints a different self-portrait. I feel like oftentimes we, maybe this is just me in my uh, young experience, um, but I have had the, the experience of meeting people who have no confidence in their faith, who doubt themselves, who doubt, who doubt God, who doubt Christ, who doubt their own salvation. I very rarely meet someone who is confident, like how Paul kind of puts himself here. But even if, I think this is an incredible passage to to point to the people who have those doubts, who, who can't seem to get up in the morning and feel confident in the promises that God has given to them. This is an incredible passage to lead them to because even even if you did feel confident in your faith, even if you did feel confident in your works, in your Bible reading, in your morning time, in, the, in your service to the church, in your service to your community, it's still not about that. It's still not about that. Because this man, this man had all of it. Much more than any, because essentially if, if no one's Jewish here, we're all Gentiles. We're all considered According to Jewish law, we're all considered unclean outside of Christ. We are pure simply because Christ accomplished the law. And, and we, are, we receive his righteousness um, when, he receives, when he took our sin. So this is reassurance because if you lack confidence in what you do or don't do, Paul comes in and says, well, it's not about the confidence in the flesh anyway. So relax. So what is it about? What is it all about then? Verses seven through eight. But whatever thing, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, by whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may, so that I may gain Christ. This, this is what it's all about right here. This believer, this is your glory. This is your knowledge. He didn't just lose everything that he just listed. He counted them as lost. Here he uses business terms where he takes, he added up all his assets, as we just saw, and came to a final conclusion. It's lost. 
It is one huge loss. Matthew 16, 26 says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Paul presents here a significant contrast between the things that he had at birth, the privileges he had at birth, and the significant achievements in um, obeying the law. And he counts that all as rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord, our Lord. There's something to say about something taken, how something, is, something that is taken is much less of a statement than something that is counted as loss. When, you, when, you, when something is taken from you, you grieve, but it's simply, it's done away with. There's much more brevity in saying like, I counted that as loss anyway. I will f- willingly give up these privileges because I know of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, of having this intimate conformity, this intimate knowledge conformity. He even presents Christ as the one through whom he suffered all this loss to begin with. He is the reason these things were lost to him. Paul describes the loss of these things as rubbish. I count all these, all these privileges, all these achievements as rubbish. That word in the Greek is skubalon, which is directly translated as feces. But a more concise, a more accurate description of that word is essentially gutter garbage. Not just feces, but everything that goes into the gutter. So feces and everything else. I'll let your imagination run wild with that. So it's much more. So Paul is making this stark contrast between his privileges, his worldly privileges as a citizen of Rome, of the tribe of Benjamin, as gutter garbage. But I want you guys to see what he's comparing that to, because that is the reason why we're here. And that is the surpassing value of knowing Christ. To recap point number two, in our present pursuit of knowing Christ, these are the characteristics, characteristics that we bear as followers of Jesus. That we worship in the spirit, we boast in Christ, we do not put confidence in our own flesh, in our own accomplishments of obedience to the law, and we consider the value of knowing him and him alone. Leads us to point number three. Hold fast to a Christ-centered salvation. Verse nine. So, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Verse nine, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. This is justification. This is how you are made right with God. It is the slamming of the gavel that you are declared 
that you, you do not make yourself righteous, that you are declared by a divine deity on behalf of Christ, righteous. Able to enter into Christ's presence. Paul here makes a contrast between two types of righteousness. And we see his first righteousness described in detail in the passage we just went through. Is it my own righteousness or in the righteousness that God has provided in Christ? 2 Corinthians 5.21 explains what many theologians call the great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is your divine privilege, church. This is your incredible inheritance in being justified. A way to kind of remember what justification means, because I know that's kind of a big theological word, is, is the phrase, just as I've never sinned, and just as I've always obeyed. Just as I've never sinned, because Jesus didn't, and just as if I've always obeyed, because Jesus did. That is justification, that word, uh, like, to be justified is diakosune, and it, it means being declared innocent. This is in opposition to the Latin word used in the Latin Vulgate, where uh, Roman Catholics derive their theology on justification, and that word is iustificari, which means being made righteous. Do you see the problem there? That is with the, the changing of one word changes an entire theology, cha- changes an entire religious system. There is a vast chasm between being made righteous and being declared righteous, and that is on behalf of Christ. Justification is full because God gives believers Christ's righteousness, and it is final because it depends solely on God's gift in his son, of his son. So let, I would implore you, church, let your justification be the engine of your wholehearted obedience, knowing that and reflecting on the incredible riches that were bestowed upon you on behalf of another. And that is, the way that you do that is through faith. We see a very clear definition in Hebrews 11 and the first verse where we get a definition of faith, where it says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. Meaning it's not, I'm not uh, tossing a coin in a fountain. There's no, there is, there is an assurance. It is a conviction. It is something that is secure. That is faith. It's not wishing upon a star pie in the sky, God, hoping that he saves me. It is an assurance. Um, Another easy way, a more more, uh, uh, descriptive way to describe faith is with three things. Head, heart, hands. Head, heart, hands. So with your mind, you ascend and you agree with the mind of God. 
you trust him. You have faith that he is correct. With his definition of righteousness, with his definition of holy, you ascend your mind to his head. Second one is your heart, your affections. Faith is also renewed affections, renewed desires. You have a new heart. That is also faith. And then lastly, hands. Faith does not simply stay here, and it does not simply stay here. It goes here. It is exhibited in action. We saw in in James that faith without works is dead, that you have a provable salvation because of what you do. You're not saved because of what you do. You're saved and then you do. So head, heart, hands, that describes faith. So what does this justification make way for? What does it, what does it allow? Because once we're justified, we don't get taken up to heaven. There's still work to do. What does being justified allow you to do? What does it pave the way for? And here we see arguably the most difficult part of the entire Christian life, and that is sanctification. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Let me, remi- let me remind you that these, these letters were, re- were read publicly to the church. So whenever, we, whenever they got... Um, Whenever they received Paul's letter, they would read it out so that everyone could hear. Any, anyone without, within earshot could hear what uh, Paul, um, their father in the faith, had to say. <clears throat> so in the public reading of the letter, I could imagine that as they were hearing this, they heard the part where he says that they may know him, and they're like, amen. I love that. The power of his resurrection? Oh boy, yeah, I can't wait. Amen. Amen. Fellowship of his sufferings, a, wait, hold on. Being conformed to his death. Now, wait just a minute. Hold on, Paul. This is arguably the hardest part of the Christian life because it is the point between, it is the amount of time between you are justified when you come to saving faith in Christ to when you die and are glorified. And we'll see that next. Some people may have it easier according to, their own standards. Other people may suffer for their faith. But if we reflect back on chapter one, we know that we are able to do that joyfully. Right, church? We, we suffer joyfully. This is uh, sanctification. And so um, I wanted to read Psalm 63 because Paul has David's attitude that we see in Psalm 63. And I'm just going to read that here for us. Psalm 63, Psalm 63 says, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name My soul is satisfied as with morrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. 
My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes, but the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory for the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. Paul is drawing on the theology of David. We see David is experiencing incredible, grueling circumstances being an Israelite king on the run. But he's able to rejoice because he, because he remembers in what God has provided, in his promises. And I believe that in our process of sanctification, that's made possible when we keep that in mind. So now that we have justification and sanctification, that leads to our glorification. Verse 11, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, for God who said light shine Light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We are not left here. We understand the beauty of justification. Amen. Amen 100% to that. We understand becoming intimately known by Jesus in our sanctification. Why? Because we are being conformed into his death. If you keep it there, you are the most to be pitied. And Paul, and Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that if the resurrection never happened, we as Christians are the most to be pitied because our faith is meaningless. Jesus' life, death, ministry, his sending, his being sent by God the Father was affirmed, closed when he resurrected. If we don't have that, we don't have a Christian faith. That is the crux of our entire faith-based system, of our communities. So Paul ties it into a beautiful bow here in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That is our hope, church. We are not left to our own devices. We are not left to suffer on our own because there is a glory awaiting for us, awaiting us. But it is only if we are in Christ. The New Testament has language um, about salvation in different tenses. I think it's on your outline. Um, hopefully it's on your outline. But um, regarding salvation, it has different tenses. It says, in, in, it uses words like in the past tense that you were saved, it also uses a, a, a present tense, meaning that you are being saved. And then lastly, it has um, a future tense, that you will be saved. Those three describe justification, sanctification, and glorification. Let's see if I can remember this. I didn't write it down. Um, these three are described in three Ps. In your justification, you are freed from the penalty of sin. You will, not, you will not suffer the penalty of sin because that was done on the cross. So that is your justification. You are freed from the penalty of sin, meaning 
That's in the past tense. You will not suffer for, uh, for your sin anymore because it was done away with on the cross of Christ. And then presently, you are being saved. That sanctification, that you are being freed from, and this is the second P, you are f- being freed from the power of sin. If you've been a faithful believer for quite a while, you, you'll be able to recognize in your life that you are not held to a lot of the sin that you once were held to. That's sanctification. That's something to glory in, to boast in, because it, you are being further conformed to the image of Christ. That is, you are being saved because you're being freed from the, the power of sin. And then the third P is presence. In your glorification, when you get to heaven, when you are in the presence of our Lord, you will be freed from the presence of sin. There will be no more tear, no more anguish. That is what Christ has secured for us, church. So I exhort you, in closing, as we're in our sanctifying process, we remember our present pursuit of knowing Christ, and it is an ongoing pursuit. And I pray, I pray you don't do it alone, because frankly, you can't. You can't. You were never meant to do this, any of this, alone. Because like Israel, you were saved out of a community into a community. That is why we gather here. That is why we partake in the Lord's Supper. That is why we baptize, because we, baptism, you are being included. If you're being baptized, you are publicly proclaiming that you are identifying with us. As, God's bo- as, as the body of Christ. Not only that, but you're identifying in the resurrection of Jesus. This is why we partake in the Lord's Supper because we are, being, we are remembering what he accomplished for us, what he secured for us. So in closing, in our present pursuit of knowing Christ, we have the duty of rejoicing in the Lord not by ourselves, but with others. Because that is the true, that is where the true glory lies, is sharing in Christ with one another. We also warn, we use our, we save and use our harshest language, not vulgar language, but we use our harshest direct language with people who intend to distort our gospel our salvation, our Jesus. In our present pursuit, we also, are, we also are to exhibit certain characteristics, and that is worshiping in spirit, boasting in Christ, not boasting in ourselves and, and putting confidence in the flesh, and considering the value of knowing Christ. And then lastly, we hold fast to a Christ-centered salvation because that's the only salvation that is able to save. Because like I just walked through each and every single one of them, all three, if you take Christ out of any of them, you are the most to be pitied. 
In your justification, you will still suffer the penalty of your sin. In your sanctification, you will still feel the power of sin. And in your glorification, you will still feel the presence of sin, and it won't be in heaven. So if there's anyone here who this is the first time hearing about Jesus, just know that Jesus accomplished so much for those who put trust in, and, and saving faith in him. And that faith is exhibited in the head, heart, and hands. You take Christ out of any one of those three, you have a false gospel. But this true and living God who has provided this great news that in sending his son has provided everything that we need. Everything that we need to know Christ now in our present pursuit in this evil and dark generation, perverse generation, to guide us home. To guide us home. But we endure together. Amen, church? Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father in heaven, Lord, you have abundantly blessed your people with the, the precious price that, that your son paid on the cross so that we may know you, so that I, I, may, be even, I may be even to uh, approach your throne room with this prayer on behalf of myself, on behalf of the people within earshot, whether online or in person, you have preserved us, the faith in us, Lord. And I just pray that you continue to move in us so that these precious truths are instilled in our minds, nestle into our hearts, and are exemplified in our actions, in loving one another, in pursuing reconciliation with one another, because you pursued reconciliation with us, a sinful, stiff-necked stiff people. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for this word that you have revealed yourself, that you, a holy, precious, and righteous God, have revealed yourself to a, a stiff-necked people, that you have been merciful that you have been long-suffering. And Lord, I just pray that you move in us and continue to be the will and the work to do that in us. Thank you for your spirit who has secured all these things. And thank you for your son who has accomplished all of these things. And it is in his very name, in our precious Lord Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that I ask these things. Amen.